mean, why do we worship? And the question is, worship who? And then the other question is, what is worship? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hembry. And I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV. We are discovering the Bible every year from Genesis 1 to Revelation chapter 22. 33 years we've been doing this, and it's very, very fascinating. We're learning much every day. We're going to study Psalm 95 in about five minutes, so stay there. Corey and Ryan are here. Corey? I'm going to be focusing in on Psalm 99 and this description of God's throne. Ryan? Well, we often read about entering the Lord's rest in the Bible, but what does it mean to enter the Lord's rest? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. They're coming up in about 20 minutes' time. Very good. And Janice is coming up in about 25 minutes. Janice? Today, I'm going to talk about in his hands. All right, so get your Bible guide out. If you don't have one, that's okay. We'll tell you how to get one in just a moment. Get your Bible guide out. Turn to today's page. Let's look at it and study the Word of God. Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God, and the great King above all gods. In His hands are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are His also. The sea is His, for He made it and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. For forty years I was grieved with that generation, and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Psalm 95 Psalm 95, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 100 is what we read today. Very interesting psalms as we focus on a call to worship. Now, this is really something. There are going to be times when we simply don't feel like praising God. Now, the truth, however, is that it is good for us to worship always. It is beneficial for us spiritually, and it keeps our hearts and minds focused on the right truth, that is, God's truth. God's truth gives us important perspective for living in this fallen world. Through all of the challenges that this world brings, we recognize that God is able to overcome, and even better, He is willing to help us through. So one of the very best things that we can do is praise the Lord. Our worship cannot just be words, though. It must also be action. We need to have God's attitude towards sin. We must loathe it. We are called to live in repentance before God, asking for his forgiveness and leading in our lives, his leading in our lives. 
Now, I truly love the book of Psalms because it helps me to pray, to meditate on, and to sing about the truth of God. And it is an ever-needed attitude adjustment that helps me live in repentance and in a world facing sin with eyes that have freshly recognized the greatness of God, our King. Now, this is absolutely stunning and amazing. Uh, today, I simply want to ask you to take your Bible guide, your June Bible guide, and turn to Psalm 95. This is the page that we dedicated to a call to worship. If you don't have your Bible guide, I want to encourage you. You can write to us or you can call or you can go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com. And when you go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com, simply click on the Bible Guide page, and it will lead you to a donate page. And I want to say thank you for your donations. They have really helped us, and that has kept us alive. So we want to thank you. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would help all the people who gave. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. But the idea is for you to go to the following page, which is downloading the Bible guide, and you can join us exactly how we have it. It's very, very interesting. Now, let's open up our Bibles and learn. But before we learn, let's pray. Father, I pray today as we look at your word that you would open up to us the Spirit of God. And Spirit of God, our hearts are willing and cleanse our hearts to make us right with you so that we can hear what you're saying to us today. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this is a really important aspect, studying the book of songs or psalms. Study it to write, to, to pray it, and to meditate on it is very critical. So let's focus on Psalm 95, verses 1 through 5. Look here. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. That's verse one. <laughs> Can you believe that? That that What a start. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great king above all gods. He's above everything. In his hand are deep places of the earth, and the height of his hills are also. Now, the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Now, I want you to understand what you're seeing. We worship God because he is great, and he is the maker and keeper of all things. It's not Mother Nature. It's not the universe. It's not time. God is the creator. We may not understand all the whys, but we do know the Lord who does them all. Now, this is interesting. We may not know why God did what he did. We might, might not understand that, but we can certainly know him. And we know him by coming to Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings who lived 2,000 years ago, and I believe died on the cross because we killed him. But death couldn't keep him. And so he rose from the dead alive, and his body's missing and has been missing for some time. That's very interesting. Well, we come to him and we say, Lord, forgive us of our sin and help us. And he does. That's what he said. He said, tell everybody about me. Now, with that in mind, we go to 6 and 7a. It says, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture. 
and the sheep of his hand. Now notice here that when we worship the Lord, we bow before him, the creator. Worship of God is always done in repentance. The, the bowing before God is important because we recognize he is the creator of who we are. We recognize that when our wives or our husbands or our children or our friends, when we talk to them, we are talking about a life created by God's Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. He created us, beloved. And everybody we talk to, whether they know the Lord or not, is a creation of God. And that's where we begin to understand who he is. And so let's keep that in mind when we pray for the people that we're involved with and all of that. Keep in mind that they are a creation of God and will live forever. And so we need to understand that because then we can tell them about Jesus Christ who will give them life forever. Now that's important. All right, let's go to 95 verse 7b and let's go on to verse 11. Today, if you will hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw me work. For 40 years, I was grieved with that generation and said, is it or it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now that is absolutely fascinating. Look at this. We can wander away from the Lord in our heart. When we change our heart to follow God, we change our life. When we change our heart, and as Christians, we begin to say, yes, Lord, Father, Jesus, forgive me, for everything I've done, when we truly say that, when we mean it, when we understand that we are sinners and the only way to deal with that sin, there's no other way to deal with that sin except come to Jesus Christ and say to him, Lord, I need forgiveness. Help me today. Then our life changes because we come to that point of desperation. And you may be there now. I want to tell you, you can come to the Lord right there. You don't have to call a number or do anything just respond to the Holy Spirit who's as close as the mention of his name in your presence right now and say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive me of my sin. I am a sinner and I need your help. Help me today, Lord. And as I, as I come to you, there's such a mess in my life. I need to begin to clean it up. Help me to do that, Father, in Jesus' wonderful name. And we all said together, we all said together, Amen and amen. God will begin to talk to you like never before and you will change and your life will shift. But a lie is when somebody tells you, I know how you'll be happy. You buy this hairspray and you're going to be happy. You smell like this flower, you're going to be happy. You take this drug, you're going to be happy. You buy this car, you're going to be happy. See, it all tells me I'm going to be happy. No, I'm not. That's not how this works. The truth is that I am not happy until I find the purpose of why I exist. My purpose for living. Psalm 99 verse one says this in the NIV, the Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim, let the earth 
shake. Now, of course, when I read that verse, I immediately think about the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God would meet with the high priest once a year. And and earlier in Israel's time, he would meet with Moses there above the Ark of the Covenant between two representations of cherubim. So let's take a look first at the Ark of the Covenant, and then we're going to talk a little bit about it. At Sinai, God gave instructions to Moses on how to build the tent tabernacle as a sacred space. Within the tabernacle, there was to be an even more sacred space, the Holy of Holies, that would contain a gold-covered box, the Ark of the Covenant. To understand what God was communicating to his people, it's necessary to look at their culture of the time, that of Egypt's new kingdom. When we do, we discover that Egypt had many parallels to the Ark. The Bible does not call the Ark of the Covenant by the same word as the Ark of Noah or the Ark Basket of Baby Moses. Instead, it uses a word that means coffer, chest, or coffin. In Egypt, a coffin wasn't just a place to inter a dead body. It acted like a substitute body for the spirit of the deceased, a place they could return to. There are Egyptian boxes that were ceremonially wrapped in a red cloth, just like the Ark was. And with the discovery of the undisturbed tomb of King Tutankhamun, a perfectly preserved Anubis chest was revealed. These chests carried the organs of the deceased in the funeral procession to the tomb. It was a wooden box covered with gold inside and out, like the Ark. It was carried by poles attached to its bottom, its lid was referred to as the mercy seat, and a statue of Anubis sat proudly on top all features of the Ark of the Covenant, except for the idol. Rather than an idol, the Ark of the Covenant had two cherubim, angelic beings with outstretched wings that met together over the mercy seat. From between the cherubim, God's presence would meet with Israel. Protective winged creatures also created sacred space in Egypt. There are multiple examples of Egyptian winged goddesses, protectors of the divine with outstretched wings whose tips touch. So what does all of this mean? Mainly that God was using cultural imagery familiar to the Israelites to speak with them. Rather than being just another one of Egypt's gods, God was above all. Sacred, as represented by the boxes, the tabernacle structure, and the winged cherubim. Present, to speak with Israel, as represented by the mercy seat. And greater than any image, there was no idol image of God. The Ark was also a type of reliquary, a place to put sacred things. Inside the Ark at first were the tablets of the law given to Moses on Sinai. These tablets were likely flakes of stone that measured around the same size of one or two man's hands they needed to fit within the Ark. Placing them inside the Ark corresponds with the Near Eastern practice of placing a treaty at the feet of the chief god of the people. The Bible tells us that the Ark was also known as the footstool of God. These comparative studies show us that God chose to use imagery that already symbolized issues of the divine to the Israelites, but he rearranged it to reveal himself. He didn't expect them to use his language right away. Instead, he spoke to them in theirs. All right, so what I hope that you got from that segment is the fact that God used and uses imagery and symbolism that we are already aware of and and that ancient Israel already understood in order to communicate to them 
truths about who he was and truths about reality and, and ultimate truth. So he didn't require them to speak an entirely different language in order to communicate with God. He uh, used existing framework to speak to them. But then I think when you're when when you're digesting this kind of issue, it moves beyond that and and we begin to realize that okay, well, some of these pagan cultures actually were tapping into part of the reality and part of the truth about God because for example, when you look into ancient Egypt, we see that they also believed in cherubim and cherubim-like creatures who were seen to guard the thrones of the gods and things of this nature. So whether you say that that is, you know, culturally passed on from the, the time period of Eden or whether these ancient people were actually having spiritual encounters with, for example, fallen angels or demons, uh, there, there is something real about the spiritual world. But then that you have to then continue that conversation on and realize that it is, it wasn't appropriate for Israel and it's still not appropriate for Christians today to poke around too much in the spiritual world. The Bible really only tells us what we need to know about the spiritual world, not necessarily everything that we want to know. Uh, and, and there's an element of safety and protection for us in that, you know, Israel was not to go to mediums. They were not to go to diviners or use divination in order to figure out the world around them. They were supposed to go directly to God and ask him through his priesthood in the ancient world. And today, you know, we pray in the name of Jesus and nothing has changed. We're, we're still not supposed to go to mediums or psychics or engage in divination in, in, in any way, shape or form, even in Christianized forms of divination. It's just not appropriate. If you go to Acts 19, Specifically in verse 19, you'll see that when there was a great revival in Ephesus and Christians, you know, people became Christians and followed Christ, they actually gave over all their literature that had to do with the occult and, and magic and things of that nature, and they burned it, and it was worth a fortune. Um, but anyway... The, we have to really think soberly about these issues and make sure we're biblically applying the truth. Yeah, it really is important to do that, right? All right. Well, we often read about the Lord's rest in the Bible and entering into that rest. And we see an example of this in Psalm 95, which of course we read today. And in this Psalm, we're reminded not to harden our hearts to God as the wilderness wandering Israelites did. Because if we do, we like them will not enter into God's rest. That according to verse 11. Now, the New Testament book of Hebrews in chapters 3 and 4 makes several references to entering into the Lord's rest. But just what does it mean to enter the Lord's rest? In Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, the writer's overarching theme is entering the Lord's rest, which he makes mention of several times. But just what exactly is the theological definition of the Lord's rest according to Hebrews? The unidentified author built his theology using other key scriptures. As a matter of fact, we see this in the very first mention of God's rest in Hebrews 3, 7 through 11, which is actually a quote from Psalm 95, 7 to 11. In these verses, the psalmist is also looking back to Numbers 14, where God denies the wilderness wandering Israelites entry into his rest because of their unbelief. In the immediate context of Numbers 14, and in that present situation as it related to the Israelites, this rest referred to the inhabitation of the Promised Land, which included peace, safety, and security all around, with God's presence in their midst. However, a major point David is making in Psalm 95 is that this rest was still available in his time, 
meaning that the entrance into the Promised Land could not have been entrance into the ultimate rest of God. Likewise, the writer of Hebrews, by quoting Psalm 95, makes the point that God's promise of entering his rest still stands today. Thus, the rest offered to the desert dwellers in Numbers 14 was a promise much greater than just real estate. As Hebrews says, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. So if this wasn't God's ultimate rest, then what is? To answer that important question, it is imperative to understand the greater context of Psalm 95. While the immediate context of verses 7-11 to was God's rejection of the unbelieving Israelites, the psalm as a whole is about God's right to rule as king because he is creator of everything. This contextual key regarding God as creator is critical to understanding what the Lord's rest truly is, and the writer of Hebrews builds on this by expanding his biblical theological base even farther to include yet another foundational passage of scripture, Genesis chapter 2. It's fitting that Hebrews reaches back to the very origins of the heavens and earth for the origin and definition of God's rest. As Genesis explains, God created everything in six days, and then on the seventh day he rested from all his works and sanctified it as a Sabbath rest. This Edenic state, then, is the very definition of God's ultimate rest according to Hebrews and the rest of Scripture. Although mankind was initially created into that perfect rest, our fall into sin spoiled that. Nevertheless, since that time, God in his great love, mercy, and grace has been working through Jesus Christ to bring us back into that rest, which will be a restoration of that perfect Edenic state. Thus, the rest offered in Numbers 14 and Psalm 95 was only partial as it previewed and prefigured the ultimate rest in God to come, which was inaugurated through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thankfully, God still offers us this coming rest today for anyone who believes in his redemptive work through the person of Jesus Christ. So entering the Lord's rest ultimately refers to the restoration of the Edenic state before the fall of mankind. It's the complete renewal of the heavens and the earth, the new creation. Now, even though that rest is still yet in the future for those obedient and faithful to the Lord, Christians, like the Israelites under Joshua, get to enjoy a partial rest right now. Because as soon as one puts his or her faith and trust in God's redemptive work through Jesus Christ, he or she immediately enjoys a rest of conscience because they know that they will never be brought into judgment for their sins. You can check me on that in John chapter 5, verse 24. And then later, Christians will enter the Lord's ultimate rest when he restores all things. But unbelievers be aware, as Psalm 95 warns, rebellion and disobedience will result in rejection from the Lord's rest, just like it did for those to whom it was first preached. So turn your life over to Christ today if you haven't already. Come and enter the Lord's rest. Enter God's rest. That is very good, Ryan. Thank you for that. Uh, Janice? Well, today I said in his hands, we're looking at Psalm 95 and oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms for the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, 
our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. And as I was reading this, Rod, this is one of my favorite Psalms. This beginning section where it talks about shouting joyfully to the Lord and singing our praise to the Lord. And there's something that we do on Wednesday nights. Um, at a local church here in Orangeville, and we run a Bible discovery, a WANA program, and 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 it's closed right now, so don't call in about it. It's a, a closed session with kids that register and everything. But anyway, getting back to that, I have the pleasure of singing with those kids every Wednesday night. And one of our favorite songs that we like to sing is "He's Got the Whole World in His Hands." Do you remember that song? That He's Got the Whole World in His Hands. And the kids, there's nothing that brings me more joy than listening to the voices of little ones singing. And it's just done. They're they're so bright, and they just love to sing. And we make up all kinds of verses, don't we, Rod? We have that the whole world's in his hand. The wind and the rain is in his hands. And then we we say our the, our brothers and our sisters are in his hands, and our grandpas and our grandmas and our mommies and our daddies. We sing about the tiny little baby is in his hands. And and you know what? It's such a simple song, but it's actually very profound when you stop and you think that everything has been created by God. Everything is in His hands, and that can be you too. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, come to Him today. You might feel that tugging in your heart. Come to Him and know Him, and you too can be in the loving and caring hands of our Father in heaven. And He makes Himself available to us. And how wonderful that is! And if you have little ones. If you're a grandma or a grandpa, or if you're a mom and a dad, and you don't sing with your kids, do that. Sing these songs with them because. I know, as experienced, my dad right now—he's 85 years old—and lots of days when I go home, he'll say, "Jan, did you ever hear this song?" And he remembers the songs that he sang in Sunday school at 85, and we sing them together. And sometimes I learn a new song. It's wonderful. Sing with your kids and rejoice, and you sing too. Keep in mind that BD Family and Friends is a 24/7 channel. Got new new material on it. It's really good. You can get it on the internet or on television. And I want you to go there and check it out. In the meantime, let's pray. Lord, cleanse me and help me to have a pure heart as I give my entire life, my life, Lord, to follow you. In the name of Jesus Christ, and we said together, all of us, Amen.